Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. You know, time you spend learning how to trust and obey God completely. Time you spend at your Zarephath, refining those invaluable qualities of humility, contentment, gentleness. Those waiting times, they're not wasted times for those who want to truly experience an extraordinary life. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. You know, God wants to use you to accomplish something extraordinary. That's the truth. But before he can do that, he needs to prepare your heart. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress shows how God uses times of waiting to transform our hearts and prepare us for his purpose. It's a message called Waiting Time Isn't Wasted Time. Now here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome to Pathway to Victory. In today's world, we're hopelessly restless. I mean, next time you're picking up your laundry or waiting in the grocery line, watch the people in front of you. You'll catch them surfing the web on their smartphone or browsing their email, perhaps making a phone call while they're paying the cashier. Every spare moment is spent multitasking because we don't want to waste a minute. Well, in God's economy, waiting time doesn't have to be wasted time. In fact, God often allows us to endure seasons of idleness, waiting on a prodigal child to come home, or waiting on a doctor to give the test results. On today's program, we'll continue our study in 1 Kings chapter 17, in which we find the prophet Elijah in a holding pattern. He'll provide for us a model for letting God do His work while we're waiting. And this is one of the many events in Elijah's life that I featured in my best-selling book called Choosing the Extraordinary Life. Now, this book is not a Bible study on the life of Elijah. Instead, using Elijah's life as a background, we'll discover God's seven secrets for success and significance in life. When you give a generous gift to support the growing ministry of Pathway to Victory, I'd like to send a hardback copy of Choosing the Extraordinary Life to your home. It comes with a life application guide to help you apply these lessons personally. I'll explain more later in our program, so be prepared to write down our contact information. But right now, let's get started by reading the passage in 1 Kings chapter 17. I titled today's message, Waiting Time Isn't Wasted Time. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide. Literally remove yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Kareth became the place of testing for Elijah. Notice what he said. God said to Elijah, verse 4, It shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. That is, Elijah, you're going to have to depend upon me daily for your water and for your food. I'm going to send the ravens, and they're going to bring you bread and meat every day. That's what God does. Some of you are in a careth. You're in a waiting place right now. Now, let me give you a word of warning about it. Don't be surprised if things get worse before they get better. That's exactly what happened to Elijah. Okay, here he was barely eking out. Day by day, living by faith, when what happens in verse 7? 
And it happened after a while that the brook dried up. And he waited at Kareth until the word of the Lord came to him again. And eventually it did. Look at verse 9. And then the command came to Elijah, verse 9, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Now listen to me. If Kareth was the place of testing for Elijah, Zarephath represented the place of refining of Elijah's faith. What is it that God wanted to refine in Elijah and you and me as well? First of all, Zarephath refines our humility. Look at verse 9. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. <laughs> Don't be surprised if at your Zarephath, God makes you go through some humbling experiences. If you're going to be an extraordinary person, God has to refine our humility. Secondly, God uses Zarephath to refine our contentment. Look at verses 10 and 11. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please give me a little water in a jar. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, oh, and by the way, <laughs> please bring a piece of bread in your hand. She said, Elijah, I can't do that. Look at verse 12. As the Lord God, your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. You know what she's saying? She's saying, Elijah, because of this God, Jehovah, you serve. There's a famine in the land. And because there's a famine in the land, I only have a little bit of flour left and oil to make bread with. So we're going to go make a meal. My son and I are going to eat it, and then we're going to die. Look at verses 13 and 14. You would think Elijah would say, oh, well, I'm sorry. I would never ask you to give me bread under those circumstances. Well, look at verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. And afterward, underline that, afterward, you make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Have you ever said to God, God, if you will just meet my need, then I will obey you. Have you ever noticed how God says, no, you go first. <laughs> you obey me and then I'll provide for your need. That's what Elijah was saying on behalf of the Lord. And what did she do? Look at verse 15. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah and she and her household ate for many days and the bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Now, James 5.17 tells us that this famine lasted for three and a half years in Israel. Elijah had already spent six months at Kareth, so do the math. That means he was with this widow for three years. And guess what they ate for three years? 
bread and water, bread and water. I mean, it's like the Israelites. Remember 400 years earlier, they had been in the wilderness wandering around and they were complaining they didn't have anything to eat. So what did God do? He sent manna. Remember those little wafers? He sent manna. He provided enough manna. Manna in the morning, at noontime, at night. Manna souffle, manna casserole, but manna bread. I mean, it was manna all the time. And they began to complain about that. And he said, okay, I'll mix it up a little bit. I'll send some quail. And they sent quail to them miraculously. And then they said, we're tired of the quail. And what did God do? He killed them. <laughs> killed them for their ingratitude. Elijah wasn't about to make that mistake. Never once in these three years did he complain. Why was God doing this to him? Why was God saying, you're going to subsist on this manna and bread? Because he was trying to teach Elijah, the all-important lesson of contentment. You know what contentment is? Good definition. Contentment is being at peace with the unchangeable circumstances God has placed in my life. Contentment. Containment is what the word actually means. Being self-sufficient, or better yet, being Christ-sufficient. Not depending upon outward circumstances for your happiness, but learning how to be content in whatever circumstance you're in. We read that passage just a moment ago in Philippians 4, verse 11. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. God wants us to sever any dependence upon people or possession or circumstances for our inward sense of well-being. He wants us to learn to depend upon him. And that's hard. That's hard to be content, isn't it? I mean, we have this insatiable desire, all of us do, for more or for better or for different. If only I earned more money. If only I lived in a better house. If only I had a different job or different mate. Then I could truly be happy. All of that is an illusion. It's an illusion. The only way to truly be satisfied is by learning to depend upon God for your well-being. But it's something that has to be learned. And I think that's what God was doing with Elijah during these three years of of manna or in water and bread. He was teaching Elijah to learn to depend upon God for his satisfaction in life. Look, as long as you are always looking for more, better, or different, you're going to be distracted by those things and never be available for God to use you in an extraordinary way. Extraordinary people learn that lesson of contentment like Elijah did. Thirdly, our time at Zarephath refines our gentleness. It refines our gentleness. Somewhere during this period of three years, this widow's son, we don't know how old he was, died unexpectedly. And how did the widow respond? Look at verse 18. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. What she was saying was, Elijah, the reason my son died is because of you and that God you served. You're here to judge me for my sin, and that's why my son died. Now, we don't know what iniquity she had in mind here. Maybe she was a worshiper of Baal. Maybe her son was the product of some illicit relationship. 
But whatever the sin was, she saw a connection between her son, or her sin and her son's death. So she starts to blame Elijah. How does Elijah respond to this false and unfair criticism? Does he say to her, you've got it right, sister. You're a sinner and I'm a man of God. And that's the reason he died. Oh, you sinner. God judged you for that. And don't you dare speak out against a prophet of God or you're going to die too. Does he do that? Notice how he responds. It's an amazing response. Look at verse 19. He said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living, Elijah was living, and laid him on his own bed. Verse 20, he wept before the Lord, pleading, O Lord my God, has thou also brought calamity to the widow with whom I'm staying by causing her son to die? He said, God, why would you do this to this poor widow? Now this widow had just mistreated Elijah. But he interceded on her behalf to God. It reminds me of Moses, what he did years earlier when the children of Israel were blaming him for their wilderness wanderings. And God said, I'm tired of these ungrateful people. I'm going to destroy them and remove them from the face of the earth. And Moses interceded for those people who were accusing him. He said, Lord, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And that was Elijah He asked for God's best for her. And notice verse 21. Then he stretched himself upon the dead child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he was revived. How did Elijah know God would answer a prayer like that? You know, there were no books available then, how to revive the dead. There were no books like that. In fact, did you know there had never been a resurrection before in history until this time? God had never raised anybody from the dead. This was the first time God ever raised anybody from the dead. But Elijah believed in the power of God. And because of that, God honored that request, and he raised the widow's son from the dead. But you know what is even more striking to me than Elijah's faith was Elijah's gentleness in dealing with this widow. Even though she accused him unfairly, he was willing to absorb her anger and deal with her in kindness. Elijah was a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do 800 years later. Remember when Jesus was being humiliated, mocked, tortured during his six trials about his response? The apostle Peter witnessed it all firsthand. And many years later, he would write in 1 Peter 2 about Jesus. Even though he was reviled, he did not revile in return Even though he was threatened, he uttered no threats, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. And then after those trials, when Jesus was nailed to a cross, remember some of his final words about those who were killing him? He said what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And later, a few weeks later, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, following Jesus' example, while he was being stoned to death, he said to those throwing those stones, God, do not hold their sin to their account. That's the kind of gentleness, the gentleness mirrored by the Lord Jesus Christ that he wants to develop in each one of us if God is going to use us in an extraordinary way. Why do I say that? Look at the widow's reaction in verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth that is in your mouth is truth. Now I know, Elijah, that you're a man of God and that the God you serve is real. Why did she come to that conclusion? Certainly because of the miracle she had just seen, her son raised from the dead. Absolutely, it was the miracle that did that, but I think it was more than the miracle. I think when she saw Elijah's supernatural response to her anger, she thought to herself, there's something real about this prophet. And there's something real about the God this prophet serves. People are drawn to God when they see us reacting not naturally, but supernaturally. When they see us responding to injustice with gentleness rather than anger. God wants to develop, refine that quality of gentleness in everyone who wants to be used in an extraordinary way. Some of you know, I was invited to come lead the prayer at a fundraising dinner for the Republican National Committee here in Dallas. The president was going to be there and they asked me to pray. Now, the people who were gathered in that room were big, big donors. They had given a lot of money to be there to see the president. The president said to me, uh, you didn't pay $100,000 to be here, did you? I said, no, I pray cheap. But, uh, you know. <laughs> but everybody else there had paid a lot of money to be there. By the way, it doesn't matter whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats. If you're going to have an event like that and have the president, it's going to cost you a lot to be there. Well, for most people it does. Unless your name happens to be Francis Green. Peggy Noonan, in her great biography of President Ronald Reagan, tells this remarkable encounter this humble widow had with the President of the United States. Frances Green was an 83-year-old widow living on Social Security. She lived in California, but even though she had very limited resources, every year she would mail in a $1 contribution to the Republican National Committee. One day, she received a thank you note. She thought it was actually a fundraising letter inviting her to come to Washington, D.C. to meet President Reagan. She was absolutely thrilled with the invitation, not realizing it was computer-generated and also not recognizing in the lower left-hand corner there was a sizable donation required in order to make the visit. She didn't notice any of that. Instead, she showed up at the entrance to the White House with her letter in hand. She was so proud. Of course, you know what happened. The Secret Service agent went down the list. Her name wasn't on it. She was so disappointed, heartbroken. 
She was about to turn away when the man standing behind her, an executive with the Ford Motor Company, had overheard the conversation. He quickly realized what had happened. He said to her, will you meet me here tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. and I'll make sure you get into the White House? She said yes. He went on into his meeting and explained to some of the officials what had happened and arranged for him to give her a tour of the White House the next day. Tuesday morning arrived. Francis Green was there at the White House gate at 9 a.m. This particular Tuesday was unbelievably busy. Uh, attorney Ed Meese had just re resigned as the attorney general. Uh, the military was contemplating military action in a foreign country. People were going in and out of the Oval Office. But this Ford executive took Francis Green around, and they walked by the Oval Office. The door was open. Uh, the executive waved at the president. The president obviously briefed on what had happened, saw Francis there, and said, Oh, Francis, great to see you. Come on in here so we can talk. Those darn computers fouled up again. Had I known you were coming yesterday, I would have been out there to greet you myself. He invited Francis Green in. They sat down for 30 minutes and talked about their lives in California, what had happened in their lives, and what was happening in the world. And Peggy Noonan closed that anecdote with this application. She said, most people would have said that was a wasted 30 minutes for the president of the United States to spend his time talking to an 83-year-old widow. But for a great man like Ronald Reagan, that was not wasted time. You know, time you spend at Kareth learning how to trust and obey God completely. Time you spend at your Zarephath, refining those invaluable qualities of humility, contentment, gentleness. Those waiting times, they're not wasted times for those who want to truly experience an extraordinary life. As we conclude a sensitive study like this one today, I know I'm speaking to someone who's in God's waiting room at this very moment. Let me assure you that God has not forgotten about you. The time you're spending in your Kareth or Zarephath can be the most refining moments of your life. It's all part of choosing an extraordinary life. While there's still time, I hope you'll be in touch with Pathway to Victory to request your copy of my best-selling book on this topic. It's also called Choosing the Extraordinary Life. You'll see that I've gone into much greater detail on today's topic in my book. And my book also comes with a life application guide with questions to help you apply these lessons personally or discuss them with your small group Bible study. A copy of both my book and the Life Application Guide are yours when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. Now, let me clarify something very important. Your generous gift defrays the cost of these resources, but more importantly, your gift helps us reach men and women from Orlando to Seattle and from San Diego to Boston. And we have hundreds of thousands of listeners around the world who hear Pathway to Victory online or through our mobile app. I'm thinking of grateful listeners like Mitchell, who said, Dr. Jeffress, I listen to your program in Ohio. 
I can assure you that Pathway to Victory has restored my faith in Christ and brought my understanding of Scripture to a whole new level. Well, thank you, Mitchell. And friends, thank you for giving generously so that Mitchell and countless others can have access to the bold and practical teaching of God's Word. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. Today, when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, we'll say thanks by sending you a copy of Dr. Jeffress's best-selling book, Choosing the Extraordinary Life, along with the Life Application Guide. To request these resources, call 866-999-2965, or even easier, go online to ptv.org. Now, when your gift is $75 or more, we'll also send you the entire teaching series for Choosing the Extraordinary Life on CD and DVD. You could listen to these messages in your car on the way to work or watch them with your small group Bible study. To request the CD and DVD sets, call 866-999-2965 or visit ptv.org. You can also send your donation by mail, write to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us again next time when Dr. Jeffress explains that choosing the extraordinary life begins with choosing to be all in for God. That's coming up Thursday here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Join Dr. Robert Jeffress on an unforgettable trip to Israel. You've read about places like the Mount of Olives and the Plain of Megiddo. Isn't it time to see these remarkable sights for yourself? Join us on the Pathway to Victory Bible Prophecy Tour of Israel. To learn more, go to ptv.org.